Hello and welcome to Dior A Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the artists who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. You may know Kim Jones as the Wunderkind designer who's created some of the most ambitious menswear collections of recent times. What you may not know is that behind the scenes, Kim is a man of almost absurdly diverse interests, ranging from rare books to zoology and so much more. Kim draws inspiration broadly and deeply, surrounding himself with creative people who see the world in new and interesting ways. Before becoming a designer himself, Kim collected other people's work, fashion designers, writers, and artists. In this episode, we'll talk to Kim about his inspirations, past and present, as he shapes a new outlook for Dior men. Hello and welcome, Kim. Hello. Let's start by painting a picture for the listeners today with a description of your London library. Floor-to-ceiling shelves filled with first editions and manuscripts, endless catalogues and books on various subjects, tchotchkes, artworks and memorabilia. Does this mix of objects old and new, rare and common, and without much regard for hierarchy of value, reflect how you see the world and how you operate as a designer? Yeah, I always just look at things, and it's not so much if it's of value or importance, it's just if it interests me. That's how I collect things. I never, or just design things. I don't look at if it's an expensive thing. First and foremost, when I design, I look at what the house stands for, and obviously the pillars and the codes of the house, which is something I really enjoy doing. And then secondly, I look at, you know, what things I can bring into the house, what the heritage of the house is, and how you can work things within that to recreate it and bring it forward into the modern world. Yeah. You've called yourself a scanner. Yeah, I I am a bit of a scanner because I just, I'm always observing and I'm always looking and I'm quite terrible sometimes because I'll be with people, but then I'm looking at something over their shoulder because it's just, it's caught my attention. <laughs> I'm just looking at, and seeing what's going on in the world. A prime example was when you guest edited um, the A Magazine issue with an A to Z of your panoramic view of the world with themes from Africa to club kids to dogs and punk and relic. That is a very telling picture because it shows how different moments in time converge in your world. I think people's perception of me is very different to what I actually am. And I quite like that. Um you know, I have a huge amount of different interests and I and it was nice to do that because I could express them all in one sort of document. When I do something like a magazine, it's particularly when you're thinking about people studying or people that like your work that don't know so much, they can go and see what, what things inspire you to do what you do. And, I, and, you know, the range of things that go into something to then create the language of what a house might be or a collection might be. You've always been a multifaceted, multitasking designer, constantly on the move. And whether that's you as a designer, stylist, editor, and collector, you know, your work often feels like a collaboration with culture itself in, in the broadest sense. 
Um, and I think that's why, perhaps that's why so many people can relate to it. How important is it to you, though, personally? Um, I think that thing of relatability is really essential in the 21st century because I think people look at things in a cult. I think when art combines with culture, it's, that's when people really relate to it because it feels like they're part of it. And I think that's one of the successes we've had at Dior is, you know, we work with lots of different artists and we've also worked with a musician and, you know, people understand what it is and how it works and appreciate it. And, you know, that's very much what Dior did when he was alive because he was a gallerist for like 15 years, which was longer than he was a couturier. So, you know, his his knowledge of the arts and the support of artists um, like Salvador Dali and Picasso and Brack and different people that he, he were within his circle. So, you know, he was culturally aware as well as couture aware, which I think is interesting. You know, of course, we now live in a digital age. Talk a little bit about the fashion landscape. The fashion landscape itself has drastically changed. Titans of fashion pass, you know, the lone designer with a singular vision who decreed what to wear, what not to wear, has sort of evaporated. It's all about the audience uh, and how they can connect to, you know, your vision as a designer. How do you stay focused? Because I've worked with quite a lot of different artists recently. I've now changed a little bit of the way that I've been working. Also because these people can contact the designer now because of social media. There is this instant platform. When I graduated, um, you know, you wouldn't see the full show until six months later when it was in the store. Or you wouldn't, you know, the pictures were very hard to get. There weren't videos instantly out there. And I think, you know, the excitement of waiting for a collection, you know, you have to now think, how can you maintain the excitement from when the collection's made to when it's bought? Because people want things so instantaneously. And when you work in these in a luxury brand, it's very hard to just produce stuff at speed to the quality. That's not the thing that I wanted to do. It's just like maintaining the interest throughout a season is the thing that's the key until the the products in the store because people want things faster and faster so you just ha always have to be very mindful of you know timing right timing is key for everything that you do yeah exactly it's a sense you have it i mean we did the last show in january which now is in store with peter doig which was such a nice experience because he became part of the team for that season and then I was like, well, I want to do something different after that. So I thought, well, I'm going to work with a musician. And then we're showing in December, as we do for the fall show. And I thought, well, I want to work um, on literature with that one. So it's a different concept, just to refresh. The world's in a bit of a weird reset. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to do something that was a bit of a reset for the January show. Because, you know, there's an optimism for this part of the world, but then you've got negative news as well. You're looking at what's happening globally and you have to assess what's, what that's going to do impacting your work. And it's just like... But yeah, I think now more than ever, having that sense of optimism is very important and can be very profound. Yeah, completely. But before you joined Dior, you were already a big advocate of working with people, um, you know, outside of high fashion, also with brands such as Umbro, uh, Nike, Mulberry, Sakai, uh, Ramoa, 
a lot of what you've done has also become textbook studies for brands and designers. Like, when did you know that was the way forward? Because you were quite early on, you know, uh, collaboration and well, I think I think I'm confident in what I do, so to invite people in to do it, I don't feel insecure. And yeah. I, I really enjoyed, I've worked with people through um, Vton as well, because Mark Jacobs really taught me the process of, you know, if you like an artist, why emulate their work when you can work with them? That's the most authentic way to do things. Yeah. To work with the person that you admire, you learn things as you're working. Some people do have a singular vision. Some people like to create a community around them. And I like to create a community around me because they're all people I love and admire, you know? And that's the really key thing. When I went to Dior and I asked Yoon to come and work with me and then I got Matt Williams to work on the buckles with us. And it's like, it, that's a global community of people working at a Parisian couture house. Knowing how Christian Dior loved to travel and how he loved to see the world he'd probably be feeling like that too in 2021 because it you know travel was much slower then but it's very immediate now when you can do it true our world is you know increasingly more interested in diversity range and the blurring of boundaries you know to resonate with broader audience um you know collaboration seemed to make a lot of sense arguably the most talked about collaboration in recent fashion history is the Vuitton Supreme collection in 2017 that is until you launched the Air Dior last year. I think there was a headline on Women's Wear Daily that um, that said 5 million people registered for a chance to buy the limited edition Air Jordan. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it was something in that region. I mean, that is staggering. You look at Michael Jordan and you look at the Jordan 1 and it's a, a design classic. So to be allowed to play with a design classic, for me, is the thing that's really the appeal. It's my favourite shoe. And... It's something I've loved since I was a kid. So, you know, to be able to then make one that's a really desirable one yourself is an extremely nice feeling. And it's like, you know, that was a, quite a selfish move on my behalf because I wanted a pair of Jordans made by, <laughs> by in the dual, dual qualities in a colorway I love. So that's why it happened, you know. It wasn't really even about sales or marketing. It was a personal ambition that I did you know because I thought a couture house making a Jordan is like the most modern thing and with Supreme it was like yes I actually like the fact that years ago Supreme did a box logo with the Vuitton thing behind and got sued for it had a cease and desist and um and I thought it was quite nice because I really admired James Jebbia to do a project with him because Supreme is just something that has always been in my life. I used to wear it even when I was a teenager. So to be able to also work with, you know, the branding of a brand that I admire, that I don't work for, is a really lovely thing. Since you've joined Dior, you've established a new tradition of working with artists, of, um, you know, crossing boundaries and regions and disciplines. You know, there's Kondo, Moako Buafo, Daniel Arsham, Cause. But it's not always household names that you work with. Um, Sorayama, for instance, was perhaps more a cult figure. Alex Foxton, an emerging artist. What is the common thread of all these artists that you've collaborated with, like Dior? Uh, well, we, I, I wanted to start with Cause, because Cause, for me, was the artist of his generation that spoke volumes to young people. Plus, I love the fact that Brian had really 
you know, he started doing things on the streets and refining and refining to where he is now. And he is also a super lovely guy. And, you know, he's, he's now 20 years on emerged as one of the biggest living artists. I'd always had him in my mind because, you know, we'd been in the same circle for a long, long time. So I, so I just reached out to him and, you know, and I said, I'd love to do, you know, you to create something in, you know, for the show and do some branding for us. Cause I thought it's nice to take some of the dual signatures and play with them. It was just, you know, the idea of him, him doing the, the B, the Christian Dior B, which was created in 1948 and just give it a modern update. After that, you know, I love the idea that we showed in the circle around this big floral statue of the BFF with Bobby, who, and, you know, representing Christian Dior and his loyal dog. So, you know, it was telling a story about Christian Dior via causes sculpture and then redefining the codes of what Dior was with the clothes. Yeah, through the power of um, art and um, nature yeah. and, and dogs, of course. What are some of the more surprising or unexpected things that you've discovered working with artists? Mm, two of the ones that stand out for me are Raymond Petimon and Peter Doig. And Raymond, you know, I met him in a sports bar downtown with Stella Schnabel, who introduced me to him. Yeah, I'd known Raymond's work, you know, for 20 years or so. And I really loved it. I wanted to see, you know, how we could, you know, enrich it with the beadings and the embroideries, like that wonderful shirt and you know, just take those things of his and make them into objects of real beauty. Yeah, you've mentioned in the past that he was very touched by how you interpreted his work, how you brought not just a different platform, but a different dimension to his work. Yeah, I love the fact that we took... I was looking at things that felt Parisian almost with his work, because I always like to pull things back to what Dior is. And then me and him had a conversation about wildlife and he created a series of paintings of big cats and um, and then we put those within to the context of, of the collection as well. And it was just like, it was a really nice process and he was extremely fast the way he works, which is really wonderful. So that allowed us time to develop everything properly. And with Peter, he sat with us and he was going away and then doing a, an artwork and coming back with it for us to launch as a, a watercolour turning into a mohair jumper because that's the best way it still looks like a watercolour. So actually the, the materials were the consideration of how the image looked as a fabrication. And Peter was with us the whole time and really interested because Peter was at St. Martin's at the time when the MA Fine Art and BA were upstairs, the fashion was on the, the lower floors. So everyone interacted with each other. So he was very aware of everything. Going back to the Pettibon collection and how you work together on that, what I learned is that you took a detail, a design detail from Dior's 1955 Couture season with the sash uh, as immortalized by Avedon in his um, now very iconic picture of Dovima with the elephant, gave the sash a remix and um, twist and gave it to menswear. This transformation really says uh, a lot about how you interpret the codes of the house. And this marriage of past and present is very clear, but also of feminine and masculine. As a side note, I quite literally got married in this sash shoot that you 
made me. Exactly. Well, first story, we were looking at the research and we're looking at Christian Dior in front of all these statues and, you know, the sashes and things that they wore were heroic. So actually it takes away the femininity. You know, it's about that sort of heroic statuesque. That's why I wanted to show it on a moving conveyor belt so that they looked like statues. And that was the thing that really got me. It was like this just pictures of Christian Dior in front of all these statues and I was looking at all the sashes on them and then thinking about that image by Everton. And that's how that came up. And then that's how the concept of the show happened. I wanted it to be all about these 49 statues coming out looking like statues. I remember seeing that and I think I had vertigo watching the models um, pacing down the conveyor belt. Yeah. Uh, the mile long conveyor belt. Speaking of which, I think you once mentioned in an interview when you saw the mile long queue for your fragment launch with Hiroshi Fujiwara in Japan. You said seeing that excitement makes you as a designer think, oh, what can I do to challenge that and make something bigger? I mean, I'm always thinking bigger because I think that's the fun of it. I find it very telling that you use the word challenge, excitement and fun all in the same sentence. Where does this thinking big mentality come from? I've never ever thought small. I guess it's ambition, but it's like, it's not a driven, brutal ambition. It's a, 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 the only person I'm challenged is myself and I don't really, you know, I'm friends with so many designers and I love it when everyone does their own thing and is, and is good, but I challenge myself and I, you know, whether people love my work or hate my work, people certainly buy a lot of it and that's what matters to me. So... Things like reviews and stuff like that don't matter anymore. It's seeing people wanting to buy the clothes. And that's, for me, the thing that's really, really important. It's funny because people go, oh, you know, commercial's a bad word, but commercial just means you're popular. So I don't see it as a bad word. I mean, you know, there's commercial artists, there's commercial designers. It's just knowing, you know, seeing what seeing what's going on in the world and reacting to it, and that's what I do. And, you know, I like that sort of challenging myself. I find it you know, really enjoyable. I was surprised to learn that though Dior was a couturier first and foremost, he also opened up his vision to a wider section of society through accessories and licensing. He even hired an American publicist, I think, which was very forward thinking at the time, all the while maintaining his reverence for, you know, couture. So in a way, being market and business savvy is a big part of your job. Uh, like Dior, you know how to cut a suit and you know how to cut a deal uh, because fashion is a business after all. I think it's really important to be aware of the business nowadays, especially in volatile times. But, you know, I like working for brands because I don't want my name above the door. The house isn't Kim Jones, it's Dior. One of the key things I think about when I'm designing is what will be in an exhibition on Dior in, say, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. And I learned that at Vuitton when they were doing all the exhibitions of the trunks and the history. They did one in in Paris. I went to see that and then I was like, well, you don't have anything modern in that. And there's some really iconic things that were done by Marc Jacobs and you know, these should be in there. And then they did one in Japan. I was like, well, you need to look at all the Japanese things they did because they did lots of special things with Murakami, Kizama. And like, they, there was like some really beautiful bags that were done for specific anniversaries in Japan that I'd looked at in the archive. So there was the element of what, what goes with the history of the house and then also what grows the house. So, you know, the business side of it's really important. 
I like to see all the figures and work out. And I go into every store and I talk to people and I say, what are you missing? What do you think there's too much of? You know, I just ask those questions because I want to know. We do have marketing teams, but we have, um, you know, the studio that are very aware of what's going on and how, how to make a collection that can sell. I think it's really important. When you say that being commercial simply means being popular, I think that's also kind of the genius appeal of pop art, that it relates to everyone. You know, how Lichtenstein and Warhol embraced the everyday object in the work and elevated it, that's important to resonate with people. And that reminds me of what Warhol once said, which is, the world fascinates me. This seems to manifest in your work and life too, your passion for culture, high and low, and everything in between. Now, over the years, you strike me as someone who's the ultimate team player. Um, you've built a core group of behind-the-scenes collaborators, uh, a fashion family, if you like, from Lucy Beeden, your design director for over 16 years, to the likes of Ronnie Cook Newhouse, Melanie Ward, Honey Dijon, Alistair Mackey, Peter Phillips. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, and of course, there's Pietro yeah. Picari, the CEO of Dior, and Olivier Biabalus, the chief marketing officer at Dior, who brings a lot of institutional knowledge and experience. Do you rely on this network of support and feedback? Well, it me it means things work smoothly and I love Pietro and Pietro's always been a supporter and I love Olivier because he allows us to fulfill what we want to do and you know and he does it in a really gracious way and and we really enjoy working together. You know, we have I think the most important thing is that you can have a laugh with the people you work with because you know, you're with them so much and we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we get on and do the job extremely professionally and properly. We hang out with each other. It's, you know, how sometimes great ideas happen when you're not in the work environment. Things pop into your head or we're walking down the street together and see things. We have each other's backs and we get on with it. And I think that's quite rare within these big structures. We just get on with it. I like things to be fast. I like things to be efficient. I don't like things to be drawn out then if not, then they're not stimulating anymore. And then you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> What's good about Dior, particularly as a house, is there's not too many layers. So you don't get billions of ideas and people trying to interject and diluting an image, which I think is very important. Well, you um, clearly recognise the power of the image, but as a consummate multitasker from designing to styling and casting the set, um, the set music and staging and even the campaigns you're the bridge that connects all these dots um do you do it because you are also a perfectionist or do you see everything you do as as a whole from beginning to end um i just i always see it as a world you're creating this world that people react to so I want that world to be a reality that people want to be in. And then, you know, once I've done a collection, quite often I'm straight onto the next thing. I'm like, oh God, I don't want to click that anymore. Onto the next. <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm onto the next. It's like, and I think that's probably why fashion suits me. Yeah, you've always struck me as someone who's very quick to react and you always remain laser focused. I'm always working, always researching. I mean, that's just how it is. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just like, fine, next. <laughs> Are you allergic to staying still? <laughs> uh, I actually love my own time and I like very lazy days. I, I went on a beach holiday maybe three years ago and it's the first time I've enjoyed relaxing. I'm finding it hard not travelling as much, I'm not going to lie, because I like to be stimulated by seeing things and I love, I really miss Japan at the moment because it's somewhere where I find so much inspiration. 
you know, I was in New York recently, which was a real joy to be there and to just see what's going on. It's really important to walk down the street and just see what people are doing. And that's something that has been quite tricky to do. Now, let's talk a little bit about art. What are some of your favourite places to look at art? Um, oh. And do you see it as inspiration for inspiration, escape or, you know, expression? I just admire artists, you know. I find the fact of devoting your life to painting or devoting your life to sculpture, you know, that sort of thing I think is incredible. And I love living with art because you can wake up and you see something different in a painting or a drawing or, you know, that will then make you think about stuff in a different way that day. Collecting is an obsession of yours. From museum-worthy vintage British fashion, I think particularly from the 70s and 80s, artworks from all f- yeah. in all media, vinyl, design, rare books, and a mouthwatering collection of sneakers. You seem to cover it all. And I think you called yourself the organised hoarder next door. Do you have a need to own things? Yeah. It's not about... I, just, I think because I moved around a lot when I was a kid, I like to feel really settled. And, you know, I think that's probably quite true to lots of uh, children that have divorced parents, you want this sense of, I have a home and you know, I lived between London and Paris for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And I just was so happy when I could get all my things in one place together so that, and, you know, so I know where everything is. So I can, if I need a reference, I can put it out straight away. I have to say, and this isn't morbid at all, but I think where these things go after I've gone, and that's something that's really fascinating, and it's a conversation, especially, which started around my books, because I've, especially the Virginia Woolf ones, because I have a very important collection, and talking to the to Nathaniel, the, the head of the Charleston Trust, and I was like, well, what, where would you have these if I gave these to you? So... You know, I see th- I like being a completist in things, and then I think about where they're going to go after. Yeah, I mean, so much of your everyday involvement involves archives and looking at the legacy of Dior. I love researching. Is it true that you are a somewhat obsessive personality? You know, I see that manifesting in your work and your collecting habits, uh, how you want to complete things as well. Yeah, I think so. I think it's important. I like to be surrounded by things that inspire me. Some of the greatest fashion designers have also been ardent collectors. You know, Yves Saint Laurent, Marc Jacobs, I think Karl Lagerfeld, Valentino, Hubert de Givenchy. They're all tastemakers who collected a range of art and and design. What is it with designers that makes them attracted to collecting? Well, designers aren't artists. I think art for them is something to look at and be inspired by. And I think instead of just looking at and being inspired by, I work with the the artists that I admire. Yeah. And, you know, I'll ask them, and if they say yes, it's great. If they don't want to do it, they say no. And it's like, I'm never afraid. The worst thing anyone can ever say to you is no. So, you know, I'm never afraid to ask. So are you afraid of rejection? No. Because it's like, you just get on... If someone says no, there's many other people you can talk to. So you never take it personally and you have thick skin. (laughs) No. Yeah, people have their reasons to not do things. It's like absolutely fine. And it's like, um, you know, and you have to respect that.
I've worked with many collectors in my career, and I have to say, it's rare to see someone juggle, you know, such a range of interests with the drive that you do. What fuels you as a collector? I think with the books, I'm a completist. I think with the art, especially with Bloomsbury, I buy select pieces that I really love, and it's mainly portraiture. I think then around that, I've based a collection on, on works that fit in with my love of just how things work together. I live in a concrete house, so these warm it up, so to speak. And then uh, I think that's something that's really important. And it's really just things that personally I love. I like to see every day. No, it's amazing because all these reasons that you've just mentioned, it just shows that you are collecting for personal reasons. Speculation is such a big part of the market, but that doesn't seem to be part of your ethos. You know, it's more about connoisseurship and connection. And funnily enough, it's not just about visual stimulation. A lot of what you collect have functional qualities, you know, books, clothes, tapestry. They're not put on a pedestal. You live with them. You know, they are living objects that almost require touching, handling and interaction. Yeah. I mean, my dining room chairs are Omega workshops and it's like, you know, and they, you know, obviously people have to be a bit careful with them, but I love living with these things and, you know, I'm not too precious about them. Obviously they get um, you know, restored or maintained or kept. And, you know, the clothes have gone to a museum so that they're protected and safe for the next generation of people to see because I saw clothes moths one day and I was just like, no way. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to make sure that they were safe. So you don't see yourself as owner so much rather than... No, not at all. A custodian, in a way, taking care of it, looking after it and passing it along eventually. Absolutely. Things aren't um, yours. They're just with you for the time. And that's, you know, that's why I'm aware of like protecting them for the next generation, but I'm not um, precious about them. If someone really loved something and wanted it, like the Charleston Trust, I would give it to them. You know, that's, that's just how it is. I'm not, you know, because then, you know, you only have so many walls. Yeah, I mean... Those who know you will know that you are and have always been incredibly generous, not just with gifts, but with your time and your, you know, uh, friendship. Are there any other untapped areas you'd like to start collecting? I imagine you would be a world-class stamp collector. (laughs) Uh, I've probably got a stamp collection from when I was a kid somewhere. (laughs) I used to collect, um, I used to save up and buy penny blacks. I've gone through the phases of collecting for sure. Yeah. Um, from Star Wars toys to stamps to, you know, books. I've always been in, always been into books, and I still have pretty much all my books from being a kid, especially those first Ernest Hemingways that I read when I was um, going to Africa a lot. I think I get it from my father and my uncle because they're both massive collectors. They were both. My father collected Asian and African art because he spent his whole life travelling and working in those countries in um, different parts of Africa. He'd restore... Um, antique carpets from the Caucasus and um, Kazakhstan and and you know he'd spent hours like dyeing the yarns and then weaving and repairing you know the carpets and I used to watch him doing it. I, I'm sure that experience of moving around the countries in, in the African continent, Botswana, Ethiopia, Ghana, Tanzania, 
That experience must have instilled in you this sense of curiosity and openness for discovery. Um, and also, of course, uh, your love of nature. Yeah, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, for sure. And I think, um, you know, you saw the world as this big thing. Even though we live in a small world, there's a lot of the world that's still very big. It's one of the things that in the current world where you see climate change happening as a very fast and scary thing, especially this year, seeing all that's happening in the world, you know, that's something else I'm addressing in what can I personally do? How can I support these things? What can I finance to make things better in certain areas? Because those people rely on, you know, that rely on that land and also share it with wildlife. That's quite a scary sort of point of view because the ecosystem gets damaged if the wildlife isn't there. I mean, I do conservation projects, you know, in my spare time um, and fund different communities and projects to protect very endangered animals because, you know, I was very fortunate in seeing lots of really amazing things when I was a kid and I don't want the next generation of kids to not see them. You've said you want to see pretty much all of the world before you die and that for you, it is the fundamental thing about being alive. Why is travel so important to you? Because I've done it since I was three months old and I don't know what else to do. It's in your DNA. Yeah, it's installed. Now, you visited Charleston as a child and that, I know, made a huge impact. Does your love of Bloomsbury and the Omega workshop stem from the philosophy of bringing art and design closer and embracing that overlap? Or is it the goal of creation and enjoyment and the pursuit of knowledge that resonates with you? Well, it was also a sense of collaboration too, which I think is something that echoes to me. And the fact that they were modernists at their time, and that's something that always interests me. When, when a group of people can move culture forward and the way that people think about life forward, it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, for me, I just saw this house and how beautiful it was and how it was a group of adults living the way they wanted to live and not how they were dictated to live. Um, and then creating and working and collaborating throughout their lifetimes. And I think that's something that's really admirable. Things done for love, not for money. Because I do, you know, money isn't something you should always focus on. It's always about doing something you love. I never think about money when I do my job. I think about doing my job. It's just the thing that I like doing. I'm commercial because... I like to see people wearing the clothes, but I do stuff that it's kind of part of a community. So I guess that's what I relate to with them. You're clearly mad about Virginia Woolf. The title of this podcast is a wink to her book, The Common Reader. And even your house in London is named after one of her novels. Yes. Not by me, though. (laughs) Not by you, but... uh, Destiny, I suppose. Exactly. It was meant to be. Some of the themes explored in the novel Orlando, such as gender fluidity, feels especially relevant today. The themes of Orlando um, address everything that is topical at this moment. For me, you know, it's about time travel. There's even an element of global warming within Orlando where you know, going from a very cold, frozen river to then a very hot desert and changing sex. And it's just shy of 100 years old, that book, and it's more the resonance of it today. And the way John Maynard Keynes and the Bloomsbury Group talked about politics, they were very ahead of their time, totally without even knowing it. 
that's something that I find particularly interesting. And that's, you know, I think it was Obama that used John Maynard Keynes' political essays as part of the structuring of how he was going to look at America. These things that come from a small group of people that are creating something that is enduring and long-lasting. Are you drawn to their sense of rebellion as well? Yeah, I think subversion and rebellion are interesting things that make things move forward. They were resisting what their parents did. They were coming out of the Victorian ages. And then you, the next thing you look at that I'm interested in is like the punk movement and McLaren and Westwood and how they brought culture, music, art together in a really fascinating way. There's these people that were catalysts that created something new and revolutionary, probably without even thinking about it, but coming through subversion. Do you see yourself as a rule breaker, rule keeper or rule maker? I'm not a rule breaker. I just get on with things. Uh, but I think sometimes I do things and I'm like, oh, well, people like that. But then it's like, well, I like it. So I believe in it. And that's how I feel. On that note, thank you, Kim. And thank you all so much for listening today. Join us on Dior, a common thread on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thank you.